This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Tom Shalhoub. I'm Liz Peek. I'm Charles Payne, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, August 17th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. Iowa takes center stage, and for Republicans looking to take on President Biden, they first need to convince voters they're a better choice than the former president. They trust Donald Trump. They may not have before the first time they voted him, and he didn't win the caucus there in 2016, but they feel like he proved himself, and so they don't feel the need to peel off. We speak with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream about the state of play in the GOP primary. And Lisa Brady. There is mass devastation on Maui, but hope and community live on. People are really fighting for each other and uh, really working together to rebuild uh, what has been lost and burned up in the fire. And I'm Jason Chaffetz. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. A favorite coffee mug of mine I bought at a popular Des Moines gift shop proudly proclaims Iowa. For some reason, you have to come here to be president. Whether or not that remains the case in the years to come is up for debate. But at least in 2024, Republicans looking to beat President Joe Biden need to win over voters before the caucuses in January. I think these voters take it really seriously. They pay attention to what's going on in the national campaign and they pay attention to the national polls. Iowa political strategist David Kogel says voters in the state also can break late. So we might see polling now shows President Trump up, uh, but if other candidates are outworking him on the ground here and out organizing, um, you know, you could see a real surprise in Iowa. That ground game often begins at the Iowa State Fair. It's been underway all week. Nearly all Republicans in the race have walked the midway, flipped pork chops and shaken an awful lot of hands. Well, gosh, the caucuses are such an interesting, unique way of doing this. The multiple votes, the getting together mm -hmm. in like school cafeterias and gyms and... I mean, it really is kind of a beautiful thing because you see our process in action. Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream is anchoring this week from the fairgrounds in Des Moines. And Iowans take this very seriously. And many of them are saying right now with everybody descending on the fair there and, you know, they're basically 24 seven. They're very persuadable. I mean, they have open minds. And so there are those who have already chosen. But I think a good chunk of Iowans are very interested in talking to you as you're eating a pork chop on a stick or a fried <laughs> Twinkie. They're going to ask you serious, substantive questions and why they should pick you over someone else. But I think they do keep very open minds because they know this decision they're making telegraphs a lot about where potentially the field goes after that very first actual contest. We've seen how abortion has become a flashpoint over the last uh, year in American politics. How is that debate playing out amongst Republicans in Iowa? They, they are all going to get asked about mm -hmm. what their stance is on abortion in this post-Roe world. I think that's why a lot of people who are 
interested in Mike Pence, the former vice president, thought he would probably connect better in Iowa because he is that social conservative and he has been consistently. It's not like he just showed up to that game. But it doesn't seem to be gaining him much ground there in Iowa. And yes, abortion, all of these things um, that they're talking about there. I mean, the governor there, Kim Reynolds, who's going to be on Fox News Sunday with us live at the fair, um, she just signed a very restrictive law into place there in Iowa. So that's where the state stands. But the fact is, you remember probably back in 2015 when we were getting ready to go into these 2016 caucuses in Iowa and all of the major pro-life groups signed this letter. I think of Concerned Women mm-hmm. for America, Susan B. Anthony List, you know, Iowa Right to Life folks, all kinds of people signed this letter that said you cannot vote for Donald Trump. We don't know where he is on abortion. We don't think he's pro-life. Something to that effect. There was language mm-hmm. there yeah, saying like, I remember, we can't trust I this guy. That. Don't yeah, vote yeah. for him. Remember, that letter was everywhere. Yeah. It's different now because these folks will look and see, all right, he gave us three Supreme Court justices who signed on to overturning Roe v. Wade. In office, he was, quote, the most pro-life president we've had in history. So they're in Iowa. The folks that pro-life is their big thing, they trust Donald Trump. They may not have before the first time they voted him. And he didn't win the caucus there in 2016. But they feel like he proved himself. And so they don't feel the need to peel off on that issue to a Pence or somebody else because they trust the former president. And that's the the hard part with um, breaking through, I suppose. I mean, obviously, Iowa has given us surprises before. Uh, Then-Senator Barack Obama was not expected to win the Iowa caucuses against the standard bearer uh, Hillary Clinton, and and he did, Mm -hmm. and it sort of propelled his campaign uh, moving forward. We've seen that play out a a couple of times on the Republican side, but it is uh, going to be a a fascinating debate there. Uh, Before we leave Iowa, let me ask, what is your favorite fair food that, that you're craving? I cannot wait to try some. I mean, we're going to start out, I'm not going to lie, at the pork chop flipping okay. area. So we're going to, I mean, you can't be in Iowa and not have some, you know, delicious fair food. And so we're going to start there. I really like the fried stuff, though, like the fried Twinkies and yep. all that. I'm Snickers actually bars. trying to yep. like, right, I'm trying to save a little room so we can, Friday, we're sort of like, our stomachs are going to hate us. We're going to drink yeah. a lot of water and just enjoy any, anything and everything. And I think it has to be fried. I don't think if it's fried, it's not allowed at the fair. Let me uh, ask you, um, you know, weighing in on your legal expertise, because there's a lot made, obviously, of uh, this indictment that we saw come down in mm-hmm. Georgia and using RICO um, to, to kind of build this conspiracy. Can you kind of explain how RICO works and why that might be a, a different kind of approach and perhaps mm-hmm. more concerning for, for former President Trump? Yeah, so RICO, so folks knows, it's the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Law. So it basically was meant to go after mafia organizations, um, groups of people bound in a common participation in a criminal enterprise. That's kind of the idea. So to do that here with 19 co-defendants, you're basically saying they all knew that they were in on an illegitimate criminal attempt to overturn a legitimate election. That's why it lists 161 overt acts. An overt act in and of itself is not illegal. Right. So they're trying to connect all of those overt acts to a Mm -hmm. grander conspiracy. Is that? Yeah. And so critics will say, "Okay, you cite a tweet by former President Trump. You cite a speech that he gave. You cite Mark Meadows reaching out to get uh, texting to get a phone number from somebody. I mean, those things are all benign of themselves Mm -hmm. and you know conservatives and folks will say okay if the government can come after you for doing that stuff like we're all in trouble but what the prosecution is trying to say here is that all of those things were linked together to this one Mm -hmm. big criminal enterprise bottom line overturning a legitimate election so you're gonna have to show that everybody involved in this kind of knew what the deal was 
the attorneys, you know, you're basically saying that the president getting legal advice from attorneys, some of whom proved out not to be right about things, um, but were giving legal advice to the president in a very heated time period, um, that them giving that legal advice was part of a criminal enterprise. So mm-hmm. it's a very heavy lift. And with 19 co-defendants in a, in a request by this prosecutor that you have a trial in six months, probably not going to happen. Oh, and not just 19 co-defendants, but what, like 30 unindicted co-conspirators. Right. Mm-hmm. And with these RICO cases, there's always the hope that you've got this huge, you're casting a very wide net, that somebody or somebody's will feel like they're the weak link. I don't want to get dragged in with all the rest of these people. And, and some flip people them. flip. A lot of this was made famous at the federal level through like going after organized crime, like mafia mm-hmm. members. Exactly. And if you get, you know, lower level people who don't have the millions of dollars for legal defense funds, they're going to be very nervous and not necessarily want to get taken down. Um, you know, President Trump has cultivated a very loyal inner group. He expects loyalty and, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that's it's going to be really tricky for some of these people who, you know, such a significant percentage of the funding that's coming into him in donations he's able to use for his legal fees. Yes. Where no one else who is one of these indicted or unindicted co-conspirators has that level of resource. Obviously, then this is the the storyline for the prohibitive favorite for the Republican nomination. So. Mm-hmm. You have, and we don't know yet if Donald Trump is going to show up on the debate um, on Wednesday night or not, but whether he's there or not, how important are these four indictments now to, to sort of the case that other Republicans are going to have to make that are 30, 40, 50 points behind <laughs> the, the former president? Well, interestingly enough, in our power rankings, which mm-hmm. this is such good there's so much deep dive information in this. They Fox, work so you know, hard on it. those. Yeah, they do. And one of the things they asked within the Republican Party, you know, are you persuadable about moving away from President Trump? So 37 percent we count as what's his base. They're with Trump. They're not going anywhere. But another 37 percent say they are persuadable looking elsewhere. And 25 percent say there's no way they're not Trump at all. So that gives you a combination of 62 percent who either say I'm persuadable or I'm not with Trump. So listen, the stars would have to line up right for a candidate um, not named Trump to make this happen, but it is within the realm of possibility. You wonder, do the constant indictments, is there any fatigue for voters or does it toughen them to the point, listen, they're after him, the more they go after him, the more it boldens my, you know, emboldens my resolve to donate and to be with him. So there is room there. And the truth is, when these things start happening, um, he's going to be pulled away from the campaign trail and from doing things and sitting in court all day. Not just that. I mean, the Manhattan trial is supposed to start in March. March. The uh, documents. The case other federal trial Florida is May. supposed to st- trying to keep them together in May. And, and then we'll see how this RICO case in, in yeah. Georgia moves along. I think that probably is the longest timeline, right? I mean, though, though, it's, it one, feels it's a like state it. case. And two, it, it can take a long time. Right. And to put this all together. And yeah. you've awesome. already got, you know, chatter about the co-defendants in that case trying to move it to federal court. I think Mark Meadows, there's talk that he wants to do that. And really, that's going to be an issue for these Georgia prosecutors because they do talk about other states, Pennsylvania, Arizona. There's going to be an argument for some of these co-defendants that this should be a federal case. And that changes it a lot about the case if that happens. It certainly would. So I'll finish with Fox News Sunday from Mm -hmm. Iowa, the state fair, you said, with uh, the governor. Um, Her star is on the rise, is it not? 
It is. And it's very interesting because there's this like mutual love fest between her and Governor DeSantis. They both were very conservative governors going through COVID, going through fights over school choice and transgender policies and all kinds of things where they've kind of found. Yeah, an abortion for sure. They both kind of found this kindred spirit. She has said she would not um, endorse in this primary, but there's chatter that she might just do it. President Trump is very angry because he's like, hey, I endorsed her. She shouldn't endorse me. Um, So we're going to talk to her about the importance of the state. Um, And we've got, I I always love to do this too on the ground. I know you do the same thing. We've got a local professor and a local reporter too to give us a better feel for what Iowans are really thinking. What do they care about? Are they persuadable? So we love having the local insight. And um, we've got Nikki Haley with us, too, to talk about how she, you know, is preparing for the debate, what she's got to see happen on that stage to stay alive. And, of course, we're going to talk about all of the Trump legal issues and Hunter Biden's as well. (laughs) Talk about Kim Reynolds. You wonder uh, if she's on any shortlist at the moment. I think she's got to (laughs) be. Well, (laughs) we will be watching uh, in Iowa. Uh, uh, I'm jealous that you'll be there eating all that fair food. Um, I will be. Uh, watching with my mouth watering and uh, excited to see you uh, next week as well in, in at the debate. So see you there. And we will travels to you as you uh, traverse uh, the upper Midwest. I will visit the craft beer tent for you, but not Thank before you. five o'clock local. We'll wait for that. Uh, make it, you know, professional, <laughs> but yes. looking forward to those looking forward to those recommendations. All right. Take <laughs> Thanks, care, Jared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Jason Chaffetz with your Fox News commentary coming up. A week after the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century laid waste to parts of Maui, the federal government is surging resources. We will do everything we can to continue to help you rebuild on the island and the island that you call home. But the head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, Deanne Criswell, also says recovery will be long and hard. In a White House briefing yesterday, she said FEMA has deployed more than 700 personnel, mobilized millions of liters of food and water, and has given out more than $2 million in assistance to families, though many are still learning how to apply for aid. FEMA has opened a disaster recovery center on Maui. And I want everybody to know this. The president, FEMA, and the entire federal family will be there to support the people of Hawaii as long as we are needed. Criswell spent last weekend on Maui and plans to return Monday with President Biden and the First Lady. For now, thousands of residents are in temporary housing, including shelters and hotels or with friends and relatives, and in some cases, sharing space in other people's vacation homes. Kindness Lahaina resident Heather Gannis is grateful for. We have necessities because of all the people who have just rallied together to help Lahaina and it's, it's just been amazing to witness the Aloha spirit is still very much alive in Hawaii. She was in California when the fires started and has since returned to Maui, where her husband and son were safe, but their home was gone. The fires are now blamed for more than 100 deaths, with more cadaver dogs arriving. 
to help search for the hundreds who remain listed as missing. Yeah, I was in Lahaina when the fires started. Ryan Valier is co-founder of the nonprofit Great Forest Ministry and lives in the historic and decimated town of Lahaina. I was getting shuttled out of town with the traffic once the, the initial fire started. And then I was actually on the other side of the island when the fire began spreading through downtown Lahaina. My house is at 206 Front Street, which is the last house there in Lahaina downtown, basically the last house in downtown. And you lost your home? Yes, correct. There's been a lot of talk about how chaotic it was, especially when the flames began to spread so much more quickly. How much notification did you have? How did you get that notification? Did people know where to flee to? No, I I was already on the other side of the island when the fire began to spread. And uh, my friends were escaping from the fire coming uh, down West Maui into Kahului. So um, basically the fire was spreading north. So people headed south. I have to ask, because you live there, I'm wondering if you were surprised not to hear sirens. Uh, yeah, I, I would, I would think so. Yes. Right. Something that, that, that sometimes would be, would be used in an, in an emergency. And, and in this case, wasn't, um, for people not familiar with Lahaina, how close knit is the community and how does that impact the collective trauma of this catastrophe? I would say that, uh, Lahaina is a island within an island. And uh, basically, it's um, its own community and its own network of people that even though we have a lot of tourists and a lot of people come in, the people that live here that call Lahaina home, uh, it's very tight knit, very close community. And so the impact of the fire, uh, even though it maybe hasn't even affected the rest of Maui as much, has directly affected Lahaina forever. And uh, all of us that live here and call it home are, um, you know, have been pretty devastated, of course. And uh, it's 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 complete destruction downtown. Basically, the entire downtown is gone. FEMA has sent hundreds of staffers um, onto the island working to coordinate relief, not just food and water, but also financial assistance. To your knowledge, is that reaching the people who need it the most so far? You know, in all honesty, no. So the people that are actually the families that are on the ground here that are actually hurting are not getting the money and resources that they need. So um, I'm working with Great Forest Ministry and with some of our other business partners. I'm the co-founder of that with uh, one of the owners of West Maui Construction and West Maui Land. And uh, we are collecting donations that we're giving straight to families that have lost their homes, that we're vetting and uh, giving funds directly to those people that are have lost their homes or lost their property. Other survivors have talked about how much people are helping each other on Maui, um, the kind of things that you're doing. And also, for instance, people with vacation homes, inviting in people who've lost their homes. Have you seen a lot of other grassroots efforts like the things that you're doing to try to help people? Absolutely. Yeah, the Maui community has come together so incredibly powerfully, just united to take care of one another, especially the West Side community. And uh, I know there has been some reports that have come out, but the general consensus is, is that people are really fighting for each other 
and uh, really working together to rebuild uh, what has been lost and burned up in the fire and also what the devastation that's happened to the individual hearts and families that have lost pets and loved ones, their homes, all their belongings. It's, it's, it's been a very uh, a beautiful story of, of beauty from ashes that are coming out of the fire, but there has been a mass devastation for the community. I know you're a pastor as well, right? Have, have a lot of people come to you just for comfort? Yes, we've been doing, uh, I'm actually meeting tonight with the uh, Foursquare, which is all the Foursquare churches in the United States. They send out a relief team. So we have a crisis counseling team that will be providing prayer support, emotional support. We also have uh, access to funds and uh, resources to give to the families that have have lost um, everything. Ryan, have you been able to go back to Front Street um, where where your home was? Um, I have not been able to get to the actual burn site, but have been able to uh, see it from a distance. Um, I, ca- I just can't imagine what that feels like. It's clear that recovery is going to be a long, very difficult process. Are, how hopeful are you that eventually a sense of normal life will return on Maui, and especially in Lahaina, even after so much loss? You know, it's going to be a huge project to rebuild. I mean, the infrastructure of downtown Lahaina has been destroyed. Uh, Many people's spirits have been really broken and crushed, but the compassion and the love that the other people in Maui and on the west side have poured out and the amount of people on the mainland that have reached out uh, just gives us hope that Lahaina will be able to rebuild and be uh, a new version of what it once was. So um, we do believe that the people and the finances and the supplies, the prayer, the love, the support will all be um, beneficial in moving forward. But it's going to be a very long process to uh, rebuild Lahaina. How long have you lived there, Ryan? Uh, So Lahaina has been home for a year and a half for me. Wow. This is... um has to be, you know, all the more devastating when you actually haven't been in a in a place that long and you were kind of putting down roots there. Do you have people before this had had people been talking about concern that you know there were more natural disasters um and is there concern, you know, after this going forward that there could be more? That's a great question. Um, I mean, periodically there's fires in Lahaina because of the dryness of the area and, but nothing like this. And I, I, obviously nobody had expected or thought that this could or would happen in in such a way. Um, I believe that, you know, the winds and the storm that came through helped propel the fire in a way that it normally would have not been uh, able to spread and usually been able to be contained in a much better way. But um, I, I think that, you know, the infrastructure of the community will be rebuilt in a way that this would never happen again. And there has been definitely talk of, um, you know, an effort for greater resiliency um, as the housing is rebuilt. What's the best way for people to help right now, for people outside Hawaii to help get relief there? You know, we honestly have enough clothes, enough water, um, we have generators coming in and Starlink and, and ways for people to get power and internet. Um, the best things that people can provide, honestly, are um, prayers, 
uh, emotional support, um, and then also financially being able to give money to the families that are having a hard time getting money from government aid and basically uh, donations that we can give to families that are on the ground that are trying to uh, buy the necessities that they need just for their life and for their family. Um, some people, like myself, I have my passport and my Bible and my laptop, everything else burned up. So um, for you know myself and, and other people that have lost, just the prayer support, the financial help has been a, a tremendous blessing. Like I said, the I'm co-founder of uh, Great Force Ministry, uh, and we basically are, are collecting donations that we're giving to the families that, that we know that are on the ground uh, in our local community. Is there something that you want the rest of the world to know, to take from what Maui and Lahaina are enduring through all of this? Yes, um, that we in Lahaina, we believe that God can make beauty from ashes and that uh, the people and the love and the support is going to rebuild Lahaina in a new way and um, that there's hope for the future. Ryan Valier, co-founder of the nonprofit Great Forest Ministry. Thank you, Ryan, for sharing your story with us and good luck with your efforts to help so many others. Thanks so much. Meet the American who invented a summertime staple, the folding beach chair. Frederick Lionel Cohn was born on January 23rd, 1922, to parents of Russian and Jewish descent. At a mere 11 years old, he used his talents as a gifted artist to support his family by drawing portraits of Chicago's upper class. As his family battled anti-Semitism, he began using Frederick Arnold as his professional name. During the height of World War II, Arnold enlisted in the Army at just 19 years old, miraculously surviving 50 missions. After the war, Arnold legally changed his last name and moved to New York City to pursue his art career. After watching his wife struggle to carry heavy furniture to a Long Island beach, Arnold expertly combined his mechanical skills picked up during the war with his artistic creativity to design the summertime staple, the folding beach chair. Aluminum, a fairly new material that emerged in the 1940s, gave Arnold the perfect lightweight material for his design. He devised a way to bend the metal in such a way to make it foldable, yet sturdy enough to hold a fully grown adult. In the shadows of the Brooklyn Bridge, he founded Frederick Arnold Company, which produced 14,000 beach chairs per day during its peak. The chairs proved to be a pop culture phenomenon still used by beachgoers to this day. After suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, Arnold was encouraged to write down his stories from the war that continued to haunt him well into his adult life. Following the success of his first novel, Arnold began pursuing an acting career, landing roles on the popular TV shows of the 80s, Dynasty, Knott's Landing, and Punky Brewster. As he got older, Arnold's love for art never faded. In 2016, at 94 years old, Arnold completed a haunting sculpture depicting 12 pilots getting their final briefing, the men from his unit who never returned home from the war. Arnold passed away from natural causes on May 28, 2018 in Boulder, Colorado, forever immortalizing his bodies and leaving behind a lifelong legacy of summer relaxation. Starting Monday, August 21st, the co-host of The Five and co-anchor of America's Newsroom returns with a brand new podcast. I'm Dana Perino, and this is Perino on Politics. Subscribe to the series wherever you download podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jason Chaffetz. 
What's on your mind? A momentum-shifting breakout moment at the first Republican debate on August 23rd would permanently alter the political landscape for Republicans. Easy to say, incredibly difficult to do. The key will be to give voters more of what they love about President Trump and less of what they disliked about him. That's true for Trump and everyone else on the debate stage. The problem is there's only one Donald Trump. Pretend to be him and you're done. By fixating on his 2020 election loss and training so much of his formidable firepower within his own tent, Trump is actually giving voters more of what they hated and less of what they liked about him. They want to see someone fighting the deep state, not discrediting Republicans and conservative policies in red states out of spite. And that dissonance creates an opening for someone to step into on August 23rd. A candidate who could give voters the unscripted boldness of former President Trump without his vindictive pettiness could change the race. Voters want fearless pushback against the administrative state without the incompetent and self-indulgent personnel decisions. It will be tricky balance to strike. It won't be good enough to simply be a pale imitation of Donald Trump. These candidates need to show that they, authentically, have the ability to stand up to the administrative state, push back against the biased media, dismantle destructive policies, and do it all without inflaming the very people whose votes will be needed to pass those policies. The candidate who convinces us that can be done could turn the debate into a watershed event. It's always a delicate needle to thread. Too bold and they alienate voters they will need in the general. Too milquetoast and they conjure up comparisons to former Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney, whose current performance in the Senate has been more popular with Democrats than Republicans. If Trump can be the best version of Trump, I believe he will win the nomination and prevail in a general election. A Donald Trump who has learned from his mistakes, who could mitigate his weaknesses and expand on his strengths, would be unstoppable. Yet many believe it's just not in his DNA. No doubt he has the strongest base of support. But can he expand the tent and build a coalition to win in November 2024? Unless or until he becomes that candidate, the race is on. As Trump praises Democrat lockdown governors like New York's Andrew Cuomo and California's Gavin Newsom, while vilifying one of America's most successful Republican governors, he creates an opening for a rival. Polling still shows many voters are sticking with Trump. But if one of the candidates can deliver on Trump's promises without Trump's baggage, momentum could shift quickly. No one wants to lose this race and face the possibility of a puppeteer administration of a geriatric President Biden or the incompetent Kamala Harris. Many observers would convincingly argue Trump is already the nominee given his highly impressive poll numbers. His numbers are so strong, he may not even participate in the debate. But nobody will really know until 9 p.m. Eastern on August 23rd on Fox News Channel. The first votes in the primary season aren't until January 2024, so much is going to happen over the next six months, and the biggest event thus far takes place on Wednesday night. I'm Jason Chaffetz, host of the Jason in the House podcast and a Fox News contributor. 
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.